0: Okay, welcome to episode 13 of the Magic Hour. I'm Paul Bevan, founder and CEO of Magic Valley. And today, after a short hiatus, I welcome back my regular co-host, Professor Andrew Laslett, who is Head of R&D at Magic Valley. Good to be back, Paul. Yes, excellent. Good to see you, Andrew. Now, today we have a, a very special guest joining us from the US, Mr. Paul Shapiro. Now, as an activist, Paul founded Compassion Over Killing and spent several years with the Humane Society of the US. And not only is Paul a renowned TEDx speaker, he also hosts a very successful Business for Good podcast and is the author of the book Clean Meat, which, as I have told uh, everyone who will listen, was a key precursor to me founding Magic Valley. Uh, Paul is now the the founder and CEO of the Better Meat Co., uh, who are developing microprotein ingredients. And Paul, welcome to the show. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Andrew.
1: Great to be on with you. I think it is cool that this is episode 13 because I don't know if this is the same in Australia, but in the US, 13 is perceived as an unlucky number. Is that the same down under? Pretty much. It is. It is. Okay. So this is like a pet peeve of mine. And the reason I think it's cool is because, you know, first of all, obviously there's no such thing as an unlucky number, right? You you may as well believe in witchcraft if you, maybe you do. I don't know. Maybe, the, maybe some listeners believe in witchcraft, but you know, like it's it's painful to me. Like you go to apartment buildings or hotels or uh, office buildings in the U.S. and there's not a thirteenth floor. It's like it goes from twelve to fourteen because nobody wants to be on the thirteenth floor. And it's like, how could we allow such superstition to guide us like that? It's one thing for people to believe it. It's another thing to actually work it into our actual living and working environments so i'm proud to be on episode number 13 and i don't perceive it as lucky or unlucky i just perceive it as cool to be on an episode with such an unpopular number
2: fingers crossed
1: (laughs) yeah right if lightning strikes me during this episode i'll really be eating
0: my words (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Well, Paul, we also got to uh, meet in person uh, in the US uh, in San Fran uh, earlier this year, which was uh, a definite um, highlight for me getting to to meet you. And obviously, you know, just based on the intro, you know, you've done um, you know a whole range of things um within uh, a number of different areas so i'd really like to go back to um to, to where it all started for you i guess in in terms of you know um veganism and you know and and, and interest in animal rights how did all that come about
1: sure paul uh you know basically uh, the short answer is i hope it'll be short let's see how i do um my mom worked at our local animal shelter when I was a kid, she still was in her 70s, and she still works at her local animal shelter. And so, you know, we were always taught that dogs and cats were to be loved and respected. And we always had adopted dogs in our home. They were like my siblings or like my brothers and sisters, honestly. Uh, in fact, I probably loved them more than my biological family members at some points in my youth. So... You know, these weren't like pieces of property. They weren't considered like as much a pet as much was, as they were a family member. And I mean, they would sleep in bed with me. And so anyway, this is like back in 1993 now. And a friend of mine uh, showed me a video of what happens uh, to animals who are used in, um, in our industries. And, you know, in 1993, like there's no YouTube, right? There's no internet. Like a video was a VHS tape that you put into, into a VCR. Now, for, you know, for your listeners who are younger, a VHS is like a plastic little rectangle. You push in a VCR and it shows you images. Um, so, of course, you know, back then the world was only in black and white. Um, it was snowed every day. You had to walk uphill each way to get to school. Uh, the world was, you know, very prehistoric. But what happened was, like I said, my friend showed me this video. And I was really horrified, I saw these animals who were being used for food being tormented in ways that if they had been my dogs or cats, I would have been totally horrified. And I thought, why would I care so much about my dogs and other dogs who I had never even met, but not care about chickens and turkeys and pigs and cows and so on. And I wondered like, if those are my dogs who are locked in those cages where they couldn't turn around their entire lives. Or who were being hung upside down and having their throats cut what would i do and i knew the answer was i'd do anything to try to help them and so at that time i became vegetarian i was like 13 years old and um i had never heard of a vegan but i started writing letters again there's no email so i'm like writing what we now would call snail mail letters but were actually just called letters back then just mail and i was sending uh mail to like these animal protection organizations asking them uh, for information about vegetarian eating. And I got back literature about what I thought was vegan eating. Well, this is vegan eating. That's something like, and so I said, you know, I kind of thought it sounded like holding your breath, you know, it's like you can hold your breath for a certain amount of time, but if you do it too long, you'll die. Right. And I thought that must be what it's like to be a so-called vegan. Like you could go without eating animal products. I don't know, maybe a week, maybe a month. I don't know, but there's some point after which you'll just die. Like you clearly die. And so you guys are old enough to remember probably who Carl Lewis was, or still is, he's still Mm -hmm. living. But, you know, Carl Lewis was like the number one Olympian. He was this American track and field athlete who had the most gold medals of anybody. He was like the Usain Bolt or the Michael Phelps of today, like just this widely, widely celebrated athlete. And I worshipped Carl Lewis. I had his poster on my wall. absolutely loved him. And so uh, I read an interview with him. Where he talked about being vegan. And I couldn't believe that this, like the number one athlete of our era, didn't eat any animal products. And I started volunteering at the animal protection groups. And I learned they were called vegans, not vegans. And I learned that many of them had been vegan for years. And I thought, geez, maybe this is the right thing to do. So this is like, over a period of months since I'd become vegetarian. So, you know, I'm now like 14 years old. I become a vegan. And um, I got very, very active in the animal protection movement when in my high when I was in high school. I founded a club that was called Compassion Over Killing that I turned into a nationwide organization as I went. Through college and afterwards, and we would do things like conduct undercover investigations at factory farms and slaughter plants, like we would, you know, get jobs at these places and use hidden cameras to document what was going on. And my basic theory of change back then was, you know, if only people knew, like, if only you could show people what was happening to these animals, change would ensue. How naive I was, right? Like, it, you know, there's this saying that vegetarians like to say, oh, if slaughterhouses had glass walls, we'd all be vegetarian. It's obviously not true. Like most people who watch a slaughterhouse video don't become vegetarian, right? So it became very clear to me as the years went on and we continued, you know, getting our exposés into national news and meat demand only continued to rise. Meat demand has skyrocketed in the last 30 years, actually. Uh, You know, when I was getting started, uh, there were 6 billion animals going through American slaughterhouses annually. Today, there's about 10 billion. And it's not because there's tons more Americans, though there are some more, but it's just because per capita consumption has gone way up. So- Um, I basically thought, okay, if awareness raising is insufficient, though good, but insufficient, what about public policy? And so that's when, as you mentioned, Paul, I shifted to working essentially as a lobbyist for the Humane Society of the United States, where I spent 13 years passing a number of laws to try to get better protections for farm animals and promote other agricultural sustainability policies. I'm very proud of that work. But essentially, to really try to speed this story up, uh, around 2015, I started thinking maybe food technology and entrepreneurship and innovation are gonna do more than what I was doing. Like this issue that had animated my life now for a couple of decades, how do we wean humanity off of an animal-based diet? Um, I was thinking maybe food technology will do more. And I started thinking about, look at all the other ways that humanity has stopped exploiting animals. We used to whip horses to get around for thousands of years, and nobody stopped because they cared about horses. They stopped because horseless carriages were invented. We're calling them cars now, but they're dramatically better ways to get around than a horse. Uh, We didn't stop harpooning whales because we cared about whales. We stopped because kerosene was invented and it was a cheaper, cleaner way to light our homes. We didn't stop live plucking geese to write le- letters with our quills because people cared about geese. We stopped because metal fountain pens were invented and they were a far superior way to write than a quill because you don't have to dip it in an inkwell and stop mid-sentence and so on. And so anyway, the point is like this: just three categories where animal exploitation has been eradicated by new technology. And it's hard to think of any area at all where animal exploitation, like a category of animal exploitation has been ended by humane sentiment. I mean, I have a really hard time thinking of any. And so the point is, I started thinking, well, what can I do? Right? Like, I, I wasn't really sure. Like, I didn't, you know, I wasn't a microbiologist. I didn't have millions of dollars to do VC. I didn't have an MBA from Harvard. Like, I, I just didn't think I was the one who could do any of this. And so I thought, well, at least I could write a book. And I tried to interest more people to get involved in this space interest to the scientists, the entrepreneurs, the investors actually could make a difference to get involved. So instead of doing biomedicine or pharma, they would go into this instead. And so I got really fortunate. I never published a book before, but I sold the book to Simon Schuster. The book came out at the very beginning of 2018, and it did dramatically better than I ever would have dreamt. And it opened up a lot of doors for me. And so one door was that I could continue writing About the people who I thought were going to solve this problem. Then again, I've been animating my life for decades now. And the other door was I could just become one of them myself. And I chose that door. And so my friend Joanna Bromley, who actually does have an MBA from Harvard, interestingly enough, um, we decided to co found the Better Meat Co. And at that point, um, we were trying a variety of things, working with plants. And after months, we began starting to work with microscopic fungi to the point where now, five and a half years in, we are running a biotech fermentation facility here in Sacramento, California, where we've got two dozen people working here and we're churning out microbial proteins uh, every single week. So um, that, in a nutshell, is the last 30 years of my life. I hope that I keep getting more effective at my goal, which is to help wean humanity off of an animal-based diet and move us toward a future in which humanity can enjoy all the foods that it loves without having to torment animals and destroy the planet in the process.
0: Amazing, amazing. I can certainly relate to uh, a lot of your story there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, but I'll let Andrew um, jump in. I'm, I'm sure you've got plenty of questions. There's so many things to unpack there.
2: Yeah, look, there's there's um, well, there's a there's a lot there. But um, your background is 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 not in science, and you you co-founded with an
1: with an MBA. How, how did you get the, <laughs> the science, scientists on board? Um, yeah, so we also started a company with a food scientist. His name is Adam Yi. So Joanna and I are still at the company. Um Adam left after about a year and a half. Uh, he's now running his own company., uh, it's really cool. It's called Sobo Foods. It's basically plant-based dumplings. Mm-hmm. um but so Adam was the first food scientist at the company, and he uh, did a very good job and um has, as I said, gone on to do cool, even cooler things, Hopefully, um but You know, within about a year of starting the company, it became very evident to us that uh, fungi proteins probably could outperform plant proteins for the purposes that we were seeking. And so we hired a mycologist who knew a lot more about fungi than we did. And he helped us develop a program to grow mycelium or mycoproteins and from there we started hiring more and more scientists and uh eventually we started hiring a bunch of phd's in you know microbiology and fermentation science and so on and so now we're a very very science heavy company like you know by far our biggest department is just a bunch of r&d scientists who are laboring away trying to find ways to more cheaply and efficiently grow mycelium essentially and so what started out with a single food scientist eventually morphed into more of a biotechnology focus.
2: Yeah, that makes total sense to me. I'm, I'm also interested in whether the scientists, well, in terms of the hiring process, how, how important to you as the founder of the company and your co-founder is, is mission alignment to, 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 to what you're doing?
1: It's definitely a factor that I consider because I would really strongly prefer for everybody here to be mission aligned for a variety of reasons. At the same time, if I had my choice between somebody who wasn't mission aligned but did a really great job or somebody who did a mediocre job but was mission aligned, 10 out of 10 times, I'd choose the person who's going to do a great job and doesn't care about the mission. Um, It's not essential for them to be mission aligned. It's nice. It's it's really great. I, I personally really like it because... I am so mission aligned. Joanna is mission aligned. She's a vegan as well. And, you know, I knew her because of her involvement in the animal welfare movement. So, you know, it's not like uh, I don't care about it. It would be a plus for me, but it wouldn't be tipping any scales if I thought there was somebody who is more competent or who had a better work ethic. Um, I also think it's very easy for people to become mission-aligned once they are here, mm. um, whereas it's much harder for somebody to develop a great work ethic or you know or become smarter or whatever. Uh, so um, many people who have started here have come in without really having given much thought to the problem, which is you know, humanity's dependence on animals for food. And they dramatically shift their own diets and their own world views. And so, you know, we're not running an indoctrination program here, but just the fact that their careers are devoted toward this, I do think there's like a sense of maybe it becomes easier to care about these issues because you're already devoting your career to it.
2: And I think also it's just plain education and, and being exposed to, to facts about it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Well, I would I would think that the the... F-
0: food tech industry as a whole is a lot more advanced um, in the u.s than it that it is here in australia with with a lot of trends um whether that be culturally or, or otherwise could you give us a bit more of a, a an explanation around uh mycelium and and microproteins and and the process um, for our listeners
1: yeah sure so it might be helpful to think about first like how plant-based meat is made Today, right? So, you know, first of all, it's made from plants, obviously, which fungi are not. So automatically, you're starting out in a different kingdom. But think about it like this, like, you know, think about a Beyond Burger, like, you know, the hero ingredient is texturized pea protein. Well, what's texturized pea protein? So, you know, uh, it's made from peas, but peas are way cheaper than beef, yet a Beyond Burger is way more expensive than beef. Why is that? It's because you're not really using whole peas, you're using a tiny little portion of the pea that has been subjected to a number of processes that each can cost, and that create a great final product, but it's expensive. So just to take as an example, you know, you got to grow the field of peas, you got to harvest the field of peas, and you got to mill it into a flower. This flour, though, is pretty low protein. So you've got to strip out the fiber, strip out the fat, concentrate it down into a pea protein powder that like an athlete might take as a supplement. But even then, while it's high in protein, it's not textured like animal meat because plant proteins tend to be globular like a globe. Animal proteins tend to be stringy, right? And so you have to make that globular plant protein powder into a stringy product. And you do that through a process called extrusion, which is a fancy way of saying lots of pressure, lots of heat. And that process converts the globular protein into a stringy protein. So that's really cool. But you know, pressure and heat both cost money to do. And then you still have to add a dozen or more ingredients to it to make it even more meat-like in its taste and texture. So it creates a good final product. I mean, Beyond Meat has a product they're selling hundreds of millions of dollars of per year. So very impressive. But it's expensive. It's expensive. Um, and many people can still tell the difference. they're They're not fooled um, that you know you can't tell what's not an animal meat as an example. Uh, so then the question is, is there a better way to achieve the same end? And that's where fungi fermentation comes in. Fungi are not plants. They're a completely different kingdom of life, and they're way closer to animals than plants are. Plants are over here, animals are over here. It's not like fungi are in the middle. Right? Fungi are way closer to animals. Uh, in fact, just evolutionarily speaking, you know, fungi breathe in oxygen and breathe out CO2. That's what we do. Whereas we know plants do the opposite, right? They breathe in CO2, they breathe out oxygen. You know, plants just put themselves in the sun and photosynthesize, whereas fungi do what we do. They have to find food and eat it. Like that's why mushrooms aren't green. They don't photosynthesize. So, you know, these are just two examples of how fungi are much more similar to animals than they are to plants. But really importantly, from our perspective, is not what they breathe or what color they are, but rather the fact that their proteins often tend to be stringy. So, you don't have to subject them to extrusion to get a meat like texture. Now, of course, mushrooms don't have much protein. So, what are you going to do about that? Don't use mushrooms. You can use mycelium, which is the root like structure of fungi, which often is highly proteinaceous. So, that all leads to the conclusion, which is, you can grow mycelium, a.k.a. mycoprotein, in a way that creates a meat-like texture without all of those downstream processes, without purification, isolation, fractionation, extrusion, centrifugation, extraction, all those things that you have to do. Otherwise, you get it merely through fermentation. And so what we do at the Better Meat Co. is essentially utilize bioreactors to grow mycelium that on its own, straight out of the fermenter, in its whole food, unprocessed, all-natural state already has a very meat-like texture and has more protein than eggs, more iron than beef, more zinc than beef, more potassium than bananas, more fiber than oats, and it naturally contains vitamin B12, which is typically lacking in a plant-based diet. In other words, it's a true superfood. It gets you everything about meat that you want, protein, iron, zinc, and a great texture that gives you a really nice chew, but you don't get all the things about meat you don't want cholesterol, saturated fat, animal cruelty, high greenhouse gas emissions, and so on. And so that is why we focus so much on mycoprotein, because I believe it does a better job of mimicking the animal meat experience than do plant protein isolates. Now, it's not that there isn't room for plant protein isolates. Indeed, I think there is. In fact, combining them may get you the best of both worlds. Um, But I view it as an extremely important part. It's kind of like clean energy. Like, you know, you, you want lots of options on the menu. You want the ability to have solar energy, geothermal energy, wind energy, nuclear energy, and so on. Well, the same is true in, when you're talking about meat. You're gonna want plant proteins. You're gonna want fungi proteins. You're gonna want animal cell culture. Like there's lots of different options to try to get to the same end. You know, in the other case, it's just getting energy. But in this case, it's getting meat without animals basically and or at least the meat experience without animals. And I just think that fungi fermentation is a very realistic, scalable, economical way to achieve that end today. There are other technologies like cultivated meat, which I think that five or 10 years from now are going to be contributing more and more to making a dent in the problem that we're all trying to solve. But fungi fermentation can scale today. It doesn't require uh, you know, technological breakthroughs that are you know
0: un- unknown how to fix them right now. Amazing. What, um, I- I'm interested in that. Uh, you mentioned Carl Lewis before as as an as an influence on, on you, and also the path that uh, beyond meat went down with with influencer marketing. H- how big a role do you think influencers play uh, in in the adoption of you know plant based and potentially cultivated meat or new new food technologies um, going forward? Is that something that you're you're considering, or are you really sort of more focused on a, I guess ab a B two B uh type product as opposed to a, a direct to consumer
1: yeah there's several hurdles like first you're right we're a b2b ingredients company so we're not going to be relying on influencer marketing second we don't have the money to do that anyway um so my wife is actually an influencer and she has a very large audience so i know what these companies pay her to promote their products and i can tell you like if you get into that upper echelon of influencing it's a lucrative business so you know, the point is like, this is really not for us. I also think like there's certain products that it benefits more. So, you know, if you're running a soda company, like, and, you know, you get a celebrity to, you know, take a photo drinking your soda, that might be nice, but they didn't become famous because they drank your soda. Right. But me hearing that Carl Lewis was vegan, like I, and, and saying that he attributed his vegan diet to partially to his success as an Olympian and as an athlete, like that to me, Was what was really key. Like, I think it's be cool. Like, if I found out that a singer said that they were vegan, I would be like, oh, that's cool. But it's not like they're a good singer because they're vegan. It's just an interesting fact about them. The reason Carl Lewis was so influential on me in this respect is because I thought if I eat like him, maybe I can run like him. And that was what was important to me. And so I think that's like a very different. Uh, thing uh, i will say interestingly enough so silk soy milk i noticed the other day had carl lewis um, mm. on the package and i was thinking like geez, who are they marketing to like you know nobody <laughs> under 30 knows who he is maybe people have been under 40 i don't know but um anyway maybe i'm their market Maybe like i'm the target market for this but carl lewis is still doing ads on plant-based products literally today in 2023 um so you know somebody cares what carl lewis eats or drinks <laughs>
0: absolutely and, and uh, you, you obviously mentioned that you know um path to market uh, with fermentation or or, or mycoproteins you know is 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 a lot quicker uh, than perhaps with with cultivated meat is that is that one of the reasons why um you were you were most interested in this technology, having obviously done a lot of research around you know cultivated meat um, and yeah. the other uh, the other options that were becoming available?
1: there's nobody who's a bigger cheerleader for cultivated meat than I am. Uh, I, uh, I still believe uh, very strongly in this field. Um, but the reason why when I started a company, I didn't do it was because I just thought you need so much money and so much time that I wanted to do something faster. The original idea for the company, though, wasn't mycoprotein. It was just to create B2B ingredients that you could blend into meat. Like I really thought and still think that that's the fastest way to cut, make a dent in this problem is just to hybridize current animal meat with, uh, with non-animal ingredients so people can continue to have the meat they want, but it's just better for them and better for the planet. Um, it became clear to me, though, that I thought that actually mycoprotein would probably be a better path for that than plant protein isolates, and that's why we shifted. And so the mycoprotein that we grow, like our aspiration is still for it to be used as a B2B ingredient in meat. Like that is the goal to have, you know, burgers that are half beef and half mycoprotein. Um, But people like it for animal free meat so much that we often showcase it for that as well. Um, And so I would say like, I didn't, it wasn't like I knew a lot about cultivated meat, but I decided to do mycoprotein. It was, I knew a lot about cultivated meat and I decided to do blending, you know, into meat, (laughs) you know, like I
0: just thought this is the fastest way. Absolutely. Is there is there much competition in the space with, with what you're doing?
1: Yes, there is. And you know, it's it's very friendly for the most part, not always, but most of the mycelium companies are pretty down with each other. Um and so like we have uh formed the Fungi Protein Association, which is a trade group that represents the um the mycelium companies that want to be in it. Not everybody chose to be in it, but most of them did. Um, but the you know the competition is heating up. Um, you know, there's uh li- there's active litigation in the space, which is always a sign of competition. Mm-hmm. Um, and there uh you know, there, you know, companies compete for talent, you know, companies, you know, employees move from one company to another. Like there's definitely competition. However, all of us are very keenly aware that this space is so small that if one company fails, it is bad for the rest of us. You know, it's not like, you know. If Wendy's fails, McDonald's and Burger King succeed because they pick up those customers, right? It's so small that if one company fails, what that says to the investor class is mycelium isn't a good space to invest in. And so even companies that maybe don't get along so well, I think and hope are rooting for one another um, because the success and failure of the companies in this space is good or bad for all of us, respectively.
2: Uh, Yeah, Yeah, um, I was just going to talk about um, my experience with with mycelium is uh, with a with with a uh, a company that starts with Q. I won't name the company. You can name the company if you want to. Um, and the difference between your mycelium and their mycelium, if if you want to
1: talk about that. Sure, I'm happy to name them. I love corn. It's Q U O R N. Yeah. Um, but you know, first of all, like corn is the OG in this space, right? They're 99% of the mycelium market today. They've been around for decades and they've proven that you can industrially scale mycelium fermentation to multiple hundreds of thousands of liters of bioreactor capacity. Like imagine in the cultivated meat space, if there was a company that had been for the last 25 years running 500,000 liters of bioreactor space, you know, we'd all be looking to them like, how the heck do they do it? And that's what we do. We look to corn to see what they've done. Now, the fact that they have charted a path, which is as impressive as it is, is not indicative of them having the best product. Um, I like corn, but it doesn't taste like meat to me. It tastes like something else. It's new and novel to me. And I like it, but it's not like meat. It's kind of like tofu. Like if you like tofu, that's great. But you don't think tofu tastes like meat. You eat it because you like it. It's a pleasurable culinary experience, but it's not like meat. And that's how I view corn. What we are doing, though, is creating mycelium that really does taste like animal meat. And that's a very different thing. It's like one is producing like a protein rich product, and the other is producing a meat like product that's also protein rich. And so the way we do that is basically different species. So, I mean, you know, think about it in the animal world. Um, You know, you can raise pigs, you can raise chickens, turkeys, fish, cattle, crabs. They all have different types of meat. Uh, The same is so in the plant world. You can have soy or wheat or pea or chickpea or fava bean. Like All of those produce different functionalities, different characteristics, tastes and textures and so on. And the same is so with mycoprotein. Like People think of mycoprotein as one thing, but there's thousands of fungal species out there that you can select from, and they all have different characteristics, different qualities, and different applications. What we at The Better Meat Co. are doing is focused on the utilization of strains that have a highly meat-like texture and grow very fast. That's really our goal and so it is very different from what corn is doing as well as paul you noted earlier we're a b2b brand not a cpg company like they are but our goal is not just to create something that vegetarians will like which was really you know corn's initial market was vegetarians our goal is to create something that will satisfy those who have the strongest meat tooth so to speak as well yeah that makes a lot of sense
2: and i'm super looking forward to to Tasting and comparing.
1: Ah, I would love for you to. So at the Good Food Conference, and we're recording this in September of 2023. And uh, last week, we were at the Good Food Conference in mm-hmm. San Francisco, and we served over a thousand servings of our mycoprotein tacos and Japanese curry mycoprotein, and people loved it. So many people told us it was their favorite thing they ate at the entire conference. It was just really, really well received. Um, so you know, we would love for you, Andrew, to get to try some mycelial delights at the Better Mika sometime
2: it'll happen.
0: Are, are there any companies that you're, you're speaking to um, in, in Australia, Paul? Or, or how, how, Are you just within the US at the moment or, or how does that landscape look?
1: Um, we've worked a lot with RTC Foods, which is a meat company in Australia. And we also have another partnership that I can't talk about in Australia due to an NDA, but uh, we are active down under. And we are working it. So, RTC Foods, which um, you know does uh, really good uh, blended products, which are like you know partially chicken nugget, partially chicken. Uh, we've had a great partnership with them to provide them with the plant based portions of that. Really like working with them. Um, but we are looking for the right partners on every continent to help us scale up. In fact, the Queensland Authority was just in our office recently trying to persuade us to build our next factory in Australia. Uh, I told him, you know, if the government wants to pay for the CapEx, we'll be there. You just let us know. Um, so you know, we would be very happy to do that. And I've already committed wherever, wherever we build our next factory, I've already committed to learning the language of that country. And so it'd be particularly easy for me if we moved to Australia. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Excellent. I've got another question around that. Uh, in terms of obviously, you have a very you know distinct background uh, as an activist. H- how do you go um, negotiating or, 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 or opening conversations or building relationships with um, traditional animal agriculture industry or, or businesses?
1: Yeah, you know, Paul, I never hide who I am or what I believe, but I try to make them and and a proposal that will be appealing to them. You know, if you were in the horse-drawn carriage business, wouldn't you want to get a stake in the automobile business? Uh, You know, if you were around in 1900, uh, if you were around in 1870 and you were in the whaling ship business, wouldn't you want to get a stake in the kerosene industry? Um, And so, you know, my view is that these people like, they don't like to hurt animals, they like to make money. And if they can make money by doing other things, they'll be very happy to do that. That's why on our cap table, we have lots of people from animal agriculture. We have Johnsonville Sausage, which is the, the premier sausage brand in the U.S. Hickman's Egg Ranch, which is a major egg producer in the U.S., are investors of ours at the BetterMico. You know, we've partnered with Purdue Farms, a multi-billion dollar chicken company, Maple Leaf Foods, the largest meat company uh, um, in Canada, um, and others. Uh, so, you know, the list goes on. Like, you know, for us, our biggest allies usually are, are meat companies that see the, uh, that see the future. You know, it's kind of like, if you think about Kodak, you know, they were vying for supremacy with Canon during the 1990s for who was going to win in the photography wars. They both knew about digital, but Kodak thought it was going to cannibalize its core business, so they didn't pursue it. Whereas Canon thought we should pursue it, even if it does cannibalize. And we all know what happened. You know, Kodak declared bankruptcy, and Canon is now the largest manufacturer of digital cameras on the planet. And many forward thinking meat companies see that story and they want to be the Canon. They don't want to be the Kodak. And so they hedge their bet they might invest in a company like ours they might start their own plant-based meat line they might do what jbs the largest meat manufacturer on the planet has done which is building cultivated meat centers of their own um they want to try to be uh, part of the future i think it's very clear like you know we are not going to farm tomorrow the way that we did today we don't farm today the way that we did yesterday we will farm differently and so Uh, To me, the answer to feeding 10 billion people by 2050 without destroying the planet is not a return to 19th century agricultural practices. Rather, it's to move forward into 21st century practices. And that means creating meat experiences without animals. That's what we're trying to do. That's the vision that I think many of the meat companies who work with us are buying
0: into yeah it makes makes perfect sense I, I think um i think it really depends on um the viewpoint of, of individuals within those industries whether they're they're open to you know adopting that new technology and and seeing the way forward or if they're going to become you know as you mentioned um you know, yeah go, go by the wayside for for not for not engaging
1: yeah, you know, look, I, I think that some of them are not so forward thinking, and they'll say, hey, look, yeah. we've been slaughtering animals for thousands of years, and we're going to be slaughtering them for thousands more years. But I think there's others who say, hey, you know, look, we rode horses for thousands of years. It doesn't mean we're going to be riding them for thousands more. It might be a better way to transport ourselves. Well, similarly, they might think, well, maybe a better way to feed ourselves.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, just going back, I guess, to, uh, to to clean meat, which you wrote um, over five years ago. Now, I'm just wondering. Uh, obviously, uh, earlier this year, we had the, the FDA and USDA uh, provide approval for the first cultivated meat products in, in the U.S. Um, h- how did you feel about that, and 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 like, what was the general sentiment, I guess, in in the U.S. from from your perspective from those approvals? Um, a great sigh of
1: relief that it happened, right? Like, I mean, it could have never happened. I mean, you know, look at what happened with bioengineered foods in the EU as an example, uh, where they're still not allowed to be sold. Um, so it's a great sigh of relief that it occurred. And it's a moment of great elation. However, I do want to keep it real. Like if, when I wrote Queen Meat, the book came out in 2018, as you pointed out, if you had told me that five years later, there would still be no meaningful amount of clean meat being sold on the American market, I would have thought that was not likely to be true. And so while it is wonderful that USDA and FDA did what they did, there is such a long way still to go. And even with these approvals, it's not like these companies are putting products out there. I mean, they're serving, you know, like Upside Foods is serving at one restaurant in San Francisco once a month, one ounce servings to a very limited number of people, right? It's like getting the, the golden lottery ticket. Um, and so it's really cool. Don't get me wrong, it's extremely impressive. Like, you know, they have done what a lot of people thought could not be done, just to commercialize a of, an animal cell culture product. It's wonderful. Um, but there's over hundred billion pounds of meat produced annually in the United States alone, In the United States alone right now, the plant-based meat industry is not even doing a billion pounds and the cultivated meat industry probably isn't even doing a hundred pounds. So while it is wonderful, it is a very slow process.
0: I, I know you also mentioned some of the uh, companies producing, um... Uh, other types of products not food products as well in terms of um you know leathers and and those sorts of things um do you think they're at the same sort of issue in terms of of reaching scale you know i i would have
1: predicted five years ago that modern meadow would not only be on the market but would be like kind of widely available um unfortunately that hasn't proven to be the case so i would have thought well people are going to be wearing animal cell cultured products before they are eating them turned mm-hmm. out not to be true yeah paul as as
2: a uh a b2b company i really like your pragmatic approach and i understand your pragmatic approach about um, partnering and, and not going with 100 of your product and i'm just interested to know um uh, a couple of things actually i saw that you'd applied for generally recognized as safe approval from the fda and and also interested to know whether you would already partnered with any existing cultivated meat companies to to be a, a hybrid partner
1: um, yeah, so you're right. We we have uh, filed for that. So you know, thousands of people, tens of thousands of people have already eaten our products. So we self-certified as grass or generally recognized as safe in the U.S. a long time ago. Um, but you know, we do have some food companies that don't want to use us unless we get what's called a no questions letter from the FDA, which basically the FDA yeah. says we agree that you're grass, essentially. And so yeah, we filed for that. Hopefully, we get our grass status from them soon. That would be wonderful. Um, but the other answer to your question, Andrew, is yes, we have, um, you know, look, my provides a wonderful texture. Yeah. Uh, it's pretty neutral in flavor. So the animal cells often do have a meat like flavor for obvious reasons. So why not combine them? And it's, re- it's a really cool thing to do. Uh, so yeah, we have done that. And I think it's a really promising thing. It's not a big market for us because these companies are producing, you know, single digit pounds of product at most. So it's not like, you know, we're going to run a business on this, but it is something cool that we have done and we'd like to do more of it
2: excellent now i i think that's really the a, a fantastic pathway for the future for for for, for mycelium and cultivated meat um, yeah. and my, my final question is um so have you, have you got a golden ticket yet have you managed to be able to taste uh, the the upside or good meat product
1: Uh, I have had the good meat product at their office. I've not been to Washington, D.C. and gotten it at the restaurant, which I would really like to do. Um, And I have tasted Upside's product, but that was years ago. So I'm Mm -hmm. sure it is different now than it was then. But I really liked it. I I will say, I think my opinion is almost irrelevant, right? As somebody who's been vegan for 30 years, like what I think of it is like, I mean, totally inconsequential. Um, But I'd like to try it. I have certainly no objection to it. In fact, I have a great interest in it, so um, I would do it, but I haven't yet, and if I get the chance, I will be very happy to report back and and let you know. I will just say one one quick point on the mycelium animal cell culturing that you mentioned. There's a cool company near us here in Sacramento, California. It's called Optimized Foods, and they are culturing. They're like co-culturing animal cells and fungi proteins together, And so what they're doing is um, it's like sturgeon cells that are adhering to mycelium so that you can create little pellets that are like sturgeon caviar. So you've got like actual sturgeon cells on mycelium. So they look like fish eggs, um, but it's real sturgeon cells. And, that you know, it's mostly mycelium, but there's real sturgeon cells in there. So you're eating like sturgeon caviar, which is a very expensive product. That's pretty cool. uh, It's a pretty cool idea. That's very cool.
0: Amazing. There's so much happening in this space, isn't there?
1: Yeah, yeah. I I think it would be cool if they
2: succeeded. I guess just before we wrap up, I I just wanted to check if you had any questions you wanted
1: to ask us. Um, Yeah. Uh, When do you think the first Magic Valley product will be sold and what percent animal cell will it be? Yeah, great. great.
0: Great. Great question. Um, a question we get asked a lot. Um, look, we're we're aiming uh, obviously to to commercialise uh, in in Australia um, first. Obviously, being being where we are, um, we're ideally looking to um, get our formal application uh, in for approval uh, in the next few months, and it'll then be another sort of twelve months um, for that for that process to conclude. So we're really looking at end of twenty twenty four, start of twenty twenty five. So we're still uh, a little way uh, away now. Now. Um, the percentage question is a great question. Um, our initial products that we're producing are, are mince meat or, or ground meat products, um, and there will be uh, definitely a, a percentage of, of plant-based material in there uh, and cultivated material as well. That final percentage is, is something that we're still ironing out uh, at the moment, but There'll certainly be a a percentage of both uh, in in that at least first product anyway. And I think probably ongoing in those, um, you know, ground meat or or mincemeat products. Obviously, when we're looking at, you know, more structured products, that percentage will, will obviously change. Yeah.
1: Okay, cool. Well, that's exciting. I hope to be in Australia for that first sale. Make sure you give me some forewarning so I can come on by. And, you know, for uh, Americans of my age, oftentimes they think of Australia and they think of Crocodile Dundee being like, you call that a knife? And you know, so I want to call that a steak, you know, you so I'm looking, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, Absolutely. It's
2: guest marketing
0: strategy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> Unfortunately, it's only like people 40 and up who will get it, but I think it'll yep. be fun.
0: Yeah. Uh, we we'll definitely powerful. look forward to hosting you down under, Paul. that would be great. Oh,
1: I would be overjoyed. A little would make me happier. Little would make my wife happier also. She really wants to go there. So um, I guarantee you that if I am going there, she will find a way to come as well. (laughs)
0: Amazing, amazing. Well thank you so much for your time today and and sharing your your insights and and your experiences and for for joining us on the podcast um I really appreciate your time I know you you're very busy with um the better meat co um and all the other things that that you're doing um just for our listeners where's the best place um to to find you or get in contact with you or find out more about the better meat co
1: Uh, That's kind of you. So you can go to bettermeat.co. Again, that's bettermeat.co. And if you're interested in the book, you can just go to cleanmeat.com. Again, that's cleanmeat.com. And uh, I'd love to hear from you. So if you have thoughts or suggestions, uh, feel free to contact me via either one of those websites.
2: And if you're new to the Magic Valley podcast um, and listening to us for the first time, you can find out more information on Magic Valley at www.magicvalley.com.au. And there you can find links to our podcast and all of our social media channels.
0: Thanks, Andrew. Right, Thanks so much, Paul.
1: Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Andrew. I'm giving you both fist bumps <laughs> here from California, and I look forward to being with you in person next time. Amazing. Can't wait. Be great. Thanks so much.